Welcome back to The Trail Life. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. Thank you for listening in on this little thing I call a podcast. You know, I've had I've had the opportunity to speak to a lot of great individuals over the last couple of years. And my guest today is probably one of the smartest, if not one of the craziest individuals I've ever had a chance to, to interview and meet. He's not only a trail runner, a through hiker, and an FKT record holder for the Death Valley Traverse, he's also an astrophysicist at Caltech. He studies the formations and evolution of galaxies. So yes, when I say he's going to drop some knowledge, he's going to drop some fucking serious knowledge on us today. So let's just get right into it. Welcome to The Trail Life, Cameron Hummels. The Trail Life podcast is presented by Solomon. Their passion for outdoor sports, new technologies, and craftsmanship has driven them to create progressive gear to enable you to freely enjoy and challenge yourself in the great outdoors. Today, Solomon is an incredible lineup of road and trail running footwear and hydration gear. Perfect for any runner on any terrain, no matter the challenge. Check them out today at your local running stores like Runner's Roost or on Solomon.com. Well, help me turn the turn well, first of all, thanks for joining me on this. You know, this is awesome. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because there's there's so much that that I want to talk to you about. A, it's I've always had kind of this like love of the stars and everything else, but really? since we're since we're talking <laughs> trail running, you know, it's it's awesome. Kind of meshes the the two together. So I really want to start with what you currently do because you're an astrophysicist, which makes you one of the smartest people I think I've ever. Had no, a chance no, to. no. I mean, no. <laughs> I mean. We're, we're, we're just doing what we can uh, to try and understand the world, just just like everybody else. So oh, humble as well. I love it. <laughs> so uh, astrophysicist at Caltech, explain to the listener what you do uh, as a as an astrophysicist. OK, astronomer, astrophysicist, for the most part, is just one in the same term. So it's people who, uh, as a as a profession, are trying to better understand how the universe works um, in terms of the physical phenomena responsible for for everything we see around us um, on the Earth, but also when we look up into the sky and see the heavens and, and the ways things are. So my particular like niche, my little corner of the study of, of astrophysics focuses on the evolution, the formation and the evolution of galaxies, like our own Milky Way galaxy that everyone, hopefully, especially the trail running community, uh, has been outside into the great outdoors and hopefully looked up in the sky uh, on a dark night where they where they weren't in the middle of the city in a light polluted space and hopefully been able to see that kind of uh, milky band across the sky, which dictates what are the bounds, like the, the glowing stars and gas associated with our own home in the universe. The issue simply is that when we observe other galaxies like our own Milky Way, and we can see something on the order of 100 or 200 billion 
such galaxies in the oh, universe. Shit. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. There's wow. there's lots of these guys out there. When we see them, the timescales associated with how, how long it takes for them to change appreciably are very, very long. So people oftentimes think of uh, the, Earth, the Earth orbiting around the sun, and it takes a year for the Earth to make one full revolution and orbit around the sun. Our entire solar system containing the sun and all the planets and the Earth and the moon and so on and so forth, it that itself is orbiting around the center of our Milky Way galaxy. But instead of taking, you know, a year or a few years, it takes like 250 million years to make one trip around the center of the Milky Way. And so that time scale is kind of the, the typical time frame over which these things change. And so when we look up in the sky at other galaxies and you compare an image that we took today versus one that was taken you know, 100 years ago uh, or 50 years ago, it's basically the same picture because it hasn't had sufficient time to, to move and to change. And so what I work on is running computer simulations like supercomputer simulations that are as detailed as we can make them with the computational resources that we have. These computer simulations speed up time to allow us to see how galaxies will change over much longer timescales than the ones that you and I and every human who lives a, a, a lifetime under, you know, 100 years is familiar with and, and see if we can reproduce the, the things that we see in the sky purely within our computer so that we can understand the physics that's dominant and causing those changes that, that occur over much longer times. So when it comes to the evolution and the like formation of the galaxies, is there... In the simulations, uh -huh. do you see more, like, as far as, like, we'll talk about the Milky Way, obviously, because that's where we're at, but sure. is it, is the Milky Way shrinking or is it, does it grow? Like, how does that, how does the evolution? It, it grows. That's a, that's an excellent question. And that's one of the first questions that astronomers and astrophysicists were concerned with is what is the long-term evolution of these things? Do they, do they die and dissipate or do they constantly grow? And, and for the most part, they grow over time, just like a, uh, a growing infant that you, is eating all the food that you can shove into its face, it, it, it grows and it builds over time. So too do the bulk of the galaxies in the universe. They, they grow by, I mean, it's kind of this morbid saying, but uh, galaxies are cannibals. They eat other galaxies. And as they eat more and more um, matter, they become more massive and they become larger. And it's, yeah, they just grow over time. And uh, in the distant future, when the density, when the when the universe is more spread out because the Big Bang is continuing to, ex you know, cause us to the universe to expand and things to get farther apart from each other, we might not encounter quite as many galaxies in the future. So it might kind of plateau in terms of the mass and the size of our galaxy. But in general, galaxies grow over time as they absorb their friends and neighbors. Like I said, I've always had kind of this interest in how, how that works and it transitions over time and stuff. So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's what, this is not an astronomy podcast. So I'm not that's gonna, right. I'm that's right. Because, <laughs> People are like, did I, I tune probably, into the wrong? Is this the wrong podcast? This yeah, is this I know, right? Podcast. I could probably talk this for like another hour or so. So <laughs> um, let me just ask one one more question. Yeah, sure. Extraterrestrial life or no? Possibly. I'll, I'll, <laughs> we don't we don't have we don't have, as far as I can tell, and, and other colleagues, we don't have firm evidence 
that there is in fact extraterrestrial life, but that doesn't mean, you know, simply because we haven't yet seen it, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. And as, as time goes on, we're collecting more and more information about other planets, not just around in our solar system, but around other stars and, and, uh, and having more technological capabilities of being able to, if there were life, especially like a technological civilization, um, we would be able to increasingly, as time goes forward, be able to detect it. So, so yeah, the, the short answer is maybe, uh, the, the, the longer answer is <laughs> not just yet, but probably, I mean, there's so many different systems in the, in the universe that it, yeah, it seems kind of absurd that there wouldn't be another system that would harbor life like yeah. there is here. So hopefully, I, uh, hopefully we'll see. <laughs> did, did I read, um, did I read you, you applied for NASA to be an astronaut? Oh yeah, I've applied. I've applied uh, a few times to become a uh, a NASA astronaut, but no, no luck yet. <laughs> so what's the what's the process for that? Is it just? I, oh, I, assume, uh, I assume it's probably not just a hey, I'm going to fill out this form like a regular. I'm going to. Well, it, it's funny. It starts out that way. You actually submit. You submit an application to the same place that you to USA Jobs, the same place that you would submit. You know, if you wanted to be a custodian in or or a national park ranger or or any of these things working for the federal government you submitted a, a job application in that same capacity but yeah after that it starts to be kind of weird so um every few years nasa will say okay we're requesting applications for the astronaut program and and a bunch of people will apply i think the last the last time they did this it was two and a half years ago two years ago and there were 15,000 or so 12,000 or so applicants you know the the only hard requirement that you have to have is that you are you know you have like an undergraduate i think the last one they required that you had to have a master's degree in some sort of quantitative science quantitative field like mathematics or statistics or physics or chemistry something like that beyond that there's no formal age cutoff there's no formal like height cutoff there's all you know so you you submit your application and then they ruffle through it all and and look for people who potentially have some sort of you know interesting background and and maybe what they're looking for in that particular call and then they reduce that that overall huge number of applications down to like 500 people and those 500 people they contact their references to find out you know is this guy is this guy a joker or is this guy really have what it takes and then from there they reduce it to like 120 people that they actually invite to Johnson Space Center in Houston and interview them and do tests on them to make sure they're, you know, not not uh, have any medical problems or social problems. You know, you're trapped in a in some sort of capsule for days. You want to make sure that the person isn't just irritating and you want to be able to get along with them when confined in a confined space. And then it drops down to 50 people and then they re-interview those people and then ultimately the classes that have been announced in the last couple decades typically are somewhere between eight and 10. So it goes basically from like 10,000 down to like 10 people, something like that. So I know I made it, they checked my references. So I made it to the top 500 last call, but, um, but I didn't make it beyond that. But some of my colleagues uh, here at Caltech have made it farther. In fact, a woman named Jessica Watkins just went into space. She had been a postdoc here at Caltech 
um, doing research in, I believe, planetary sciences several years ago, and she 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 made it through the program and uh, is an astronaut, and she just got launched into space last week, which is super exciting, right? Like, cool. wow, who doesn't want to go to space? Space yeah, is awesome. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's from that. I always thought that was quite interesting to to know what that was, but let's transition into why we are here. Sure. We are let's here talk about some trail running and you. <laughs> <laughs> As I've read in the LA Times and I've seen in other articles and stuff, you hold the record for the FKT in the Death Valley Traverse going northern to southern. Yes. So I want to get into that. But what is your what is your transition from from what you do being an astronomer and an astrophysicist to to trail running? Did, were you into that before you got into what you currently do? Or is this something that's kind of materialized and kind of gotten piqued your interest since you've, you know, science? That's, that's a, that's a fine question. I guess. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up outside of Portland, Oregon, lots of trails, lots of outdoor activity, lots of trail runners. Um, I don't know where the formal birth of the sport of trail running took place, but I, I feel like it could just as well be in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> for, for these purposes today, Pacific Northwest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so I feel like growing up, you know, I was always hiking. I was in the Boy Scouts, super nerding it out and doing a lot of backpacking, doing a lot of camping. And pretty soon, I guess when I was pretty young i i would uh, i would get into trail running just just because they'd have you know some trails around here in southern california most of the trails will say like 3 miles to this thing 5 miles to this thing just the sign at the trailhead or whatever but in the northwest i noticed there was a lot more or at least there used to be 20 years ago um there was a lot more where it would say you know this destination instead of giving a distance it would say like 45 minutes hike from here and i'd be like oh 45 minutes oh yeah and so i'd like i'd like try to race the uh the estimates on how long it would take to get to different things clomping around in my like big heavy uh hiking boots which of course is not the best the best thing for trail running but it was fun nonetheless so i i mean i got into it uh when i was when i was a teenager and and um but that was quite some time ago ultimately i uh, did lots of other things did cross country at a low level in high school and played a lot of soccer but um in the last 10 years I was doing a lot of uh, uh, triathlon stuff, like road triathlons, and ultimately moved to LA, and well, moved to Tucson, and then moved to LA, and found that I just have much more fun when I'm out in the in the backcountry, uh, running or hiking, and and running. It's like hiking plus plus. You know, you can get farther away from the trailhead. You can get more solitude. You can get to the cooler things if you're actually trail running. So I started doing that a lot more and did my first ultra in I don't know 2016, 2015, and 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 that's kind of my main jam these days. So so yeah, this this Death Valley business is simply just kind of like the the synthesis between backpacking and trail running because it's like part trail running and part part backpacking, light lightweight backpacking and fast packing and um, yeah. So you did. So before you did Death Valley, I saw that you you also uh, did the Pacific Crest Trail. I did. I um, twenty six hundred. Twenty six hundred. Yeah, yeah. The the base level. I did lots of side trips along the way because yeah. I mean, if you have the opportunity to be out in the backcountry, <laughs> don't don't confine yourself to just like one little ribbon of trail. If you've got a side trip, like what what the heck's over there? What's I want to I want to check out that or there's a mountain over there I can check out or something like that. So I mean, there's 
there's side trips that people do that everybody hopefully does. Like Mount Whitney is only eight miles off the main PCT. So like if a through hiker is coming through and it's not horrible weather, I encourage you to go up the highest mountain in the lower 48 if it's only eight miles <laughs> out of your way, right? So, so um, yeah, so I, in 2019, I'd been wanting to do the PCT since I was a little kid up in the, up, growing up in the Northwest. And finally, I just decided to make it a priority in my life or else I was going to be one of those people that sits there with regrets. And you're sitting there on your deathbed like, oh, I wish I'd through hike that, that trail. So I quit my job. I mean, I tried to go on leave and they said no. <laughs> so so I, I quit my job. Um, fortunately I was able to get my job back at Caltech when I came back, but, um, yeah, I wasn't sure that that was actually going to be true when I first left and I went and I threw hiked the PCT and it took me like four months and it was super awesome. And I got lucky in terms of not a lot of fires on the West coast that year. And, uh, and was able to go straight through from, I, most people go South to North. I went North to South. I thought that was a, a cooler kind of trajectory and it worked out really well in 2019. Yeah. I mean, I think it's super important to, to take advantage of the opportunities that we have to see this beautiful land. And that was one of the cool ones. Did you have, uh, did you have any inkling of the Death Valley Traverse or FKT when you were doing the Pacific Coast Trail, or is it uh, you just were like, it's just something kind of came off on the side of, of things? Like, how did how did that come about? Um, so I I knew of it. I had considered doing it before I went to do the PCT, but um, I ran out of time. This is like the 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 commonality of my life is like planning, trying to do too much stuff in too little time and not finding sufficient time to make it all work. So, so yeah, I focused on the PCT then, but honestly, um, I'm not even convinced I would have been able to do the death Valley thing and, and get the record back when uh, prior to doing the, the PCT, the, the Pacific crest trail really helped me focus and hone in what, what I really needed to to do to camp and to move quickly through through the wilderness and still have the capacity to to sleep and camp and, and set up a bivy or a tarp or something like that. And and really, but really like cut it down and have a really ultralight pack so that I'm not out there with 60 pounds of gear trying to hustle my butt over over dunes and Death Valley with with way too much stuff. Well, I mean, that's going on trips like that teaches a lot about yourself too. Like how much can you, how much mentally and physically can you tolerate in a given point? Right. So that I'm sure, I'm sure what you learned along the PCT helped you on at the Valley. Oh yeah. It helped me both from a practical sense, but also as you say, an emotional and a, and a mental sense of like persevering through not always the best conditions. I mean, oftentimes, you know, we, the stuff we remember are the beautiful views and the, and the vistas and the mountaintops and everything, but there was plenty of, plenty of crap to go through out there on the trail as well. And, 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 and helps you to kind of get a baseline of what your capacity is and know that you can persevere through a lot or, or maybe not, but it, it helps test your boundaries, which I think is really important. Well, yeah. And I'm moving into, you had a chance to do the PCT with other people in certain points of the of sure. your trip, right? So that's kind of the secondary thing of the death Valley. You had to do that thing by yourself. Yeah. So, <laughs> so let's, let's just get right into the death Valley thing. Cause th- this is quite interesting to me. So for anybody who doesn't know what the Death Valley Traverse is. For good reason, because it's not a very famous thing. It's exactly. just exactly, <laughs> and it's probably one of the craziest FKTs that I've ever read about. It's it's insane. Like 
you know, as far as that, I'd love for you just to explain the what you cannot do. Oh, sure. I'll lay it out. Go right. Because when I was reading that, I was like, well, shit, like that's like no other FKT that I've ever read about. Like, cause yeah. typically you can go, you can camp and you've got your own cash of stuff. You've got, you know, people can bring you things and everything else. Like <laughs> explain the rules of the traverse itself. Yeah. So yeah, people are probably, the audience members are probably familiar with the idea of FKTs, fastest known times, which are generally associated with some route, hopefully has some sort of significance like up Mount Everest or along the Pacific Crest Trail or something like that. They're almost always associated with trails or roads. Um, but this one was pretty unique. And I really uh, commend the, the the first guy, this Frenchman who came out and did it and, and set these rules kind of, I think, after the fact, after he did it, but nonetheless, he set the rules. And it really, that's that's part of what, I mean, I really like Death Valley, but part of what intrigued me about this particular effort and, and competition was just the nature, all the constraints associated with this. So the Death Valley Traverse is effectively, you, you are going from either the Northern tip to the Southern tip or vice versa of Death Valley proper, which Death Valley is a, a pretty large national park. It's actually the largest national park in the lower 48. And if you follow the, the valley proper, it ends up being somewhere around 160, 165 miles, which you're like, oh, 160 miles. Like people do that in a in a single go for a race, right? Especially if it's on a road or 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 particularly a trail. You know, you people, you know, Jim Walmsley or Killian Journey or someone like that could go out and and probably bang out 160 miles on a decent trail in like less than 24 hours, right? So what's the big deal? So um, this guy, this Frenchman, who was not, uh, you know, Francois Dion or something like that, some legitimate triathlete or like a pro trail runner, he um, came up with this route and basically went from the Northern tip to the Southern tip. And his rules were that you could not be on a trail. You could not be on a road. You could not have any kind of support from uh, any other person. You had to treat yourself. I think the line is you have to treat yourself like you're the only person on the planet. Uh, you can't set up any kind of caches for yourself in terms of food or water or assistance. Um, and, you know, again, in many environments, that's probably not that hard to do. But in a place like Death Valley, which is, you know, known for its extremes, it's known for being the hottest place, hottest recorded temperature on Earth or the driest location or the lowest elevation in the Western Hemisphere. Um, that's a little bit harder, harder to to accomplish. And so the fact that this is totally unsupported and. And in an extreme environment, the first people who did this, the first guy who did it, you know, he carried all of his water on his back, which is outrageous. I don't want to carry. That's a lot of water. And it, and it's a snowball effect, right? Because if you think, okay, this is going to take me five days to do. So you carry enough water for five days. Well, now all of a sudden you've got five days worth of water, which is like 50 pounds of water, and that's going to make you go slower. And so because you're going slower, it's going to take longer to do. So you need to pack more water and it turn, you know, it can very quickly turn, turn nonlinear and snowball into this much longer effort. So I think, um, I think I read that he did it with a 90 pound pack or something. Yeah. Something along those lines. Like, like that's insane. <laughs> I know. I think I'd break a knee, and especially at the beginning. Um, if you go north to south, you start up in the mountain range, which is at 7,000 feet, over 7,000 feet. And you're coming down this kind of slot 
canyon on really rough terrain with a 90 pound pack on your back like oh end up in the end up with something broken i i certainly didn't want to do that so this is where the this is where your pacific crest trail experience kind of comes into play right like you you went with a 25 pound um well ultimately my base weight was like nine or eight and a half pounds um but when i was carrying sufficient all of my food for the trip and sufficient water so i had identified water along the way um i mean that was not a trivial thing that took like months of work to identify where there were natural seeps and these were not really nice water it's not like a cascading beautiful pristine spring that's just shooting out of the side of the hillside this is like this is like a drip into a mud puddle that you're like siphoning filthy filmy water out of and hopefully you don't get sick on um but there were water sources roughly along the way every 40 or so miles and so the idea that i took into this to which was you know allowed me to do this in a substantially faster time than had previously been done was that i essentially like hamled up on water at the beginning carried sufficient water to get me across the first 40 miles of the day to the next water source um refilled my water stocks there and you know chugged a bunch of water and then made it the next 40 miles to the next water stop and so on and so forth so that was that was the little you know the like quantum leap that allowed this so you don't have to carry 90 90 pounds at a time i the heaviest my pack ever got was like 30 pounds which is you know it's it's weight but it's not it's not it's not like outrageous you can still jog with it you can still move reasonably quickly how much research did it take as you said you know there's a lot of research finding these little water like how like how long did you spend trying to figure out where these things are i mean we're talking about death valley here like yeah, it had to be like this small little. <laughs> tiny- yeah, it was it was a long time. I mean, I initially I just started as you as anyone would imagine. You know, you start looking at maps and you start looking where where are the springs on the maps? Where are their water sources along along the maps? And you know, there's a handful that are described in the in the in the public literature. Then I started um, actually. I found a an old book from 1909 from the US Geological Survey that described, uh, the title of it was called Some Desert Watering Places. Um, Because you can imagine, right? Like these days when you go to some remote location in the desert, you've got a car, you've got modern technology, you bring a big seven gallon jug in the back of your car so you don't have to rely on finding water in the location to which you're traveling. And so a lot of the literature that you can find online, people don't care where the water is. Um, but in 1909, they certainly did because the difference between finding water and not finding water was was the difference between life and death. So, so I, um, I found a few water sources through that. I contacted the hydrologist that, you know, the geologist for the Death Valley National Park and asked him a bunch of questions like, oh, do you know about any secret water around here? Or is this water, is that still, is that spring still uh, active? Or is that, are there any new ones? And, and uh, you know, he, he was somewhat helpful, but obviously that's not his job to just like figure out water sources for a jerk like me who's trying to find, <laughs> trying to find a way through Death Valley. Um, but ultimately the, the, the thing that I had to resort to doing, which is really what caused all the the time to be consumed was um, I ended up going on satellite imagery on Google Maps and just pouring over the satellite imagery looking for vegetation. And where there's vegetation, well, 
hopefully there's water, but it might be subsurface, it might be surface. And so then I'd, I spent a ton of time going to Death Valley, like going to these locations and climbing around in the brush, hoping that I wasn't getting shredded by, you know, mesquite trees and acacia thorns and whatnot. Because, you know, obviously the, the flora of the desert is not not usually very kind, the cactuses and so on and so forth. So I'd climb around and brush looking to see if I could find any kind of surface water. And 90% of the time there wasn't any, but once in a while there'd be, you know, some sort of seep that's, you know, replenishes like two liters a day or three liters a day, like really, really low flow seeps, but it was sufficient to be able to provide some sort of, some sort of water that I could use that I could rely on over, you know, over this, this few day trip. You did it in four days. Is that right? Did it? Yeah, I did it just under my goal had been to do it in, in four days, like 96 hours. And I, I, I got it just six minutes under my, my goal time. Oh. I was, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was kind of blown away that I was able to pull it off in the end, but. Uh, so kind of a day by day situation here, like how many as you're starting up more at 7,000 feet in the mountains, yep. I mean, how many miles did you, were you able to get in, in those? Cause was it the first day was, was all descent. And then you, second day you got into the Valley itself. Uh, the first day I'd say the bulk of the descending was in the first, like, I mean, I'd have to go back and look at the profile, but it was in the first, like eight miles. So this, this whole journey ended up being like, you know, from the start to the end was like 165, 170 miles or so. Cause I had to deviate from the Valley. So it was a little bit longer than it probably needed to be just so I could get to the water sources that I needed to. So in the end, I think, I think my GPS logged like 170 miles, but of that 170 miles. Yeah. The, even though I started at 7,000 feet and got down to below sea level, sea level, um, the bulk of that loss was like in seven or eight miles. You know, it's not like, it's not like uh, I cruise it out like 100 yeah. foot per mile of loss yeah, exactly. on the whole way. <laughs> I Six wish. Miles are just downhill. Like, oh, that'd be great. Yeah, it'd be super great. But no, it was for a while, it was too steep to be able to run because it, it was just steep and, and the terrain was crap um, in these slot canyons. And then finally, when you got into the valley itself, I had, I had this idea in my head that I was going to be running. I was just going to be cruising, but we get spoiled, you know, trails, trails spoil us um, to a nice tread and the expectation that everything, you know, that you're not going to sink into whatever you're, you're hiking or you're running uh, that you're, when you're going cross country in the desert, all bets are off. It is a mess out there. Um, I thought I was going to be able to run there's so much, you know, in parts, there's so much like rubble on the trail that I, tr you know, I went out beforehand to test out how it's going to be and run with a pack on, on this terrain. And I almost broke my ankle like three times in the first 10 minutes because the, the part of the terrain is so, so crappy and other parts of the train, you know, you're sinking into the sand or you're sinking into the soil. And it's just, it's like running on a, on a beach on dunes or something. It's just almost impossible. So in the end, I had, I had, I had estimated that I was going to be able to run a bunch of it. And ultimately I only ran like under 20 miles of the whole 170 mile thing. I mean, I was, I was like speed hiking and power hiking, but there was only so quickly that I could go between having a 30 pound pack and, and mostly just the terrain sucked. 
<laughs> I think it was on your third day that I saw the video of the uh, the dust wall. Oh yeah, the wall. Yeah, what's it called? A haboob. It's called a haboob. It's yeah, it's this weird <laughs> term that's taken from, unsurprisingly, Arabic because you know there's so many deserts in the Arab world between the Sahara and the and the Saudi deserts and so on and so forth. So yeah, the English word for like wind-driven wall of sand it is taken from Arab Arabic and it's uh, it's haboob. <laughs> I saw the videos. I saw well, I saw your video where you were talking in the wind. You could barely hear you, but yeah. I found another. Uh, I think you had on your website, you had a link to another, like, what, oh, what to like the news. Cause it was like a wind event. <laughs> yeah. And it, when I was, I was watching, I was like, it's like you said, it's like being in the desert and, and Oh yeah. It's like apocalyptic. It's crazy. And so the, what I started thinking was and then, <laughs> that mission impossible movie where Tom Cruise is drudging through just a wall of dust and dirt i'm like that would suck to like real life stuff that actually happens seeing that thing like oh yeah no it's it's uh it's wild when the wind picks up i mean there's nothing to stop it right it's an open desert there's no trees there's no brush and it just picks up all the dust grains and the sand grains particularly around some of the sand dunes like mesquite dunes there in the park and it lofts it up a mile high and i was just the one thing that I had going for me was that the wind, you know, these 50 mile an hour sustained winds were at my back and not in my face or else I really would have been in. I think I probably would have had to bail, but um, it was uh, it made it it made it interesting. I, I remember it coming up and I was like, oh, man, I've put so much effort into preparing for this and the timing and everything. I don't want to bail now. But on the other hand, like, well, but that's the thing. Like, how do you prepare for something like that? Well, you, you don't. You just have to be ready for the for for the the unexpected, you know, Yeah. <laughs> And just prepared, like have be motivated sufficient to know that you can you've dealt with other crap in the past. And this is new kind of crap. But, you know, hopefully, hopefully you can make it through. And I mean, ultimately, right, like Death Valley, you know, the name is Death Valley. Right. So everyone's like, why would you do it in Death Valley? You were going to die. And I was like, well, you probably probably not. Hopefully not. You know, I I was throughout the entire course of the thing you're you're never too too far from a road like you're probably the farthest you are from the road is like five to ten miles depending on where you are and sometimes sometimes closer um and if things got if things got bad you know you hike over and hope that some some tourist driving down with their family and their dog would be willing in these times of covid to pick up some dust man that rolls up at the side like saying oh i'm dying or whatever um but but there's also the concern you know i you, i also carried a garmin inreach so i could hit the sos button but i mean i don't want to be a jerk and call out search and rescue because i did some stupid thing in the desert on the other hand so so it I was probably, you know, it, I realized at one point when I looked at my watch and it was like over 100 degrees out in the middle of Badwater Basin, like the lowest point in the Western Hemisphere, the super hot, salty location that, you know, if all of a sudden I had broken my leg and fallen down, you know, hitting the SOS button probably wasn't going to be very helpful because it would take, it always takes search and rescue several a decent yeah. amount of time to get to you. I may have succumbed to the heat out, out in the basin, but honestly, it would have been really embarrassing. Like, 
you do something in Death Valley and then you die in Death Valley. Like, <laughs> it's like the most cliched thing out yeah, there. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to like the natural springs, uh-huh. did, I, did I read that you got a little bit of uh, arsenic? Oh, I got sick. I didn't know. So I don't know. Okay, well, so I meant to do this the previous year, I'd meant to go through with this in 2021 instead of when I actually achieved it in 2022. And what I had done in 2021 was when I identified these different water sources, I got, I took a gallon of water and I filled it up at each of these water sources to bring back to my house uh, so that I could test it out and see what the impact of that water was going to be on my body, not when I'm out in Death Valley proper. So that so if something goes wrong that I'm not like dying in the desert, I wanted to test it out in the, the comfort of my own home. And so what I basically did, I used a backpacking filter um, made by MSR to be able to filter out any of the baddies that might be in the water, like Cryptosporidium or Giardia or the various different organisms that live in wild water sources. But I also sent away a sample of each of those water sources to a, a water testing site, you know, in the same way that if you have a, you just bought a property and you have a well on site and you want to know what, if there's any kind of uh, chemical contaminants in that well or, or heavy metal contaminants that naturally occur in that water, you want to know about it because you're going to be using this water. So you, there are companies to which you can send your sample of water and they'll do a whole barrage of tests to identify what kind of minerals might be present in that water and if any of them are harmful or not. And so I did this and as I'd sent, sent those away, I, I decided to test out the water just on myself to see how I was going to deal with it. Am I going to get nauseous from it? Am I going to get a headache from it? Like what's going to happen? And so for a week, well, for eight days straight, I drank a gallon of this of, of a water from a different water source that I'd pulled from Death Valley and filtered filtered. So I shouldn't get any kind of biological contaminants in there. But in the end, I got sick, perhaps unsurprisingly, I got really sick. This is February of 2021, March of 2021. And um, I got like the sickest I've ever been in my life. And, and it took me months, like, in the end, it took me like, mm, until October, or so that I wasn't nauseous all the time. And I saw a bunch of doctors, I saw gastroenterologists, I saw all this stuff, they did all these tests on me, they put a camera down my down my gullet and looked down at my stomach to see if they could see anything that was wrong. And ultimately they couldn't really figure out what had, what had ailed me. But uh, the, the general conclusion was that it was some sort of virus. And so this year when I did the water, I, I, I filtered it as well as did chemical treatment that can remove out viruses and that sort of thing, kind of as a, as a double, like a two step process to purify the water. And fortunately, I, I didn't get anything this time. But um, but yeah, in, in terms of your original question about arsenic, that was definitely a concern. Um, when I got the results back from the water testing, it revealed that there was arsenic, high levels of arsenic, high levels of uranium, um, high levels of also boron, boron, evidently that's a concern in, in water sources. And, and it took to me, I was contacting like, okay, so the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency puts, or maybe, maybe it's not them, some branch of the federal government makes uh, water, water treatment 
protocols such that you aren't allowed, there's something called the MCL, the maximum contaminant level, and you aren't allowed to drink water that has a maximum contaminant level greater than X for different contaminants like arsenic or whatever. And the water from one of the water sources that I was pulling water from in Death Valley had five times the level of arsenic that you are supposed to, that's legally allowed for to be in drinking water. But, you know, those, those levels, those, those protocols are put in place for people who are drinking that water all the time, right? Having chronic use of that water. And I'm not drinking it chronically. I'm just drinking it for like two gallons in 24 hours. So I, I remember like I tried calling a bunch of doctors and they weren't any help. And then I called, I was like, I'm just going to call poison control. Like the same people you call if somebody drinks too much Drano, uh, they should be able to answer the questions about too much too much uranium and too much arsenic. So I call them up and I explain this very peculiar setup to them. I was like, if I had some water that I wanted to drink that had you know more arsenic than the maximum contaminant level, uh, what would you say? And they were like, I'd say, don't drink it. And I was like, well, but but I'm only trying to drink two gallons of this in 24 hours. It's not that I'm drinking this like every day for 10 years of my life. And they were like, we cannot advise that you drink this water. And I was like, no, but just, just level with me. Is this water going to kill me? Or is this water going to give me uh, nausea? Or am I going to be okay? And they're like, we cannot advise you drink this water. And I was like, just, ah. So in the end, <laughs> I basically took a risk and 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 was on the lookout when I was, you know, over the course of this trip for signs, symptoms of like acute arsenic poisoning. And the first few I started to experience, but they were very nonspecific, like headache and nausea and nosebleeds. And it's like, well, those, those happen. Those, those <laughs> things happen. Um, but the next kind of like level, if you're going from least intense to more intense symptoms was bloody stool and then convulsion. So uh, fortunately, I didn't experience any of those. Although every time, you know, every time I had to use the bathroom, I'm like looking <laughs> out, seeing, is there any blood in there? No. Okay. 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 Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right for right now. But, uh, but yeah, because after that, then things go really nonlinear and then you're kind of screwed. Like once you, once you start into convulsions, like, what yeah. am I going to do? Hit the SOS button while I'm like convulsing, <laughs> uh, then you're screwed. So fortunately it didn't come to that. There's uh there's no, I've fallen and I, I can't get up button. No, there's no, no. Then you're, yeah, I needed, I needed that button that they have in certain uh, senior homes, you know? Exactly. <laughs> so what's your nutrition like this entire time? I mean, uh, you're trying to minimize, but minimize what you take, but also maximize the calories that you're yeah, it's all yeah, it's all about I mean, this is a big thing for ultralight backpacking in general is like, people get all about maximizing caloric density um, in in their foods and the 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 through hiking of the Pacific Crest Trail helped a lot in kind of honing in what, what I could, what I could eat and what I couldn't eat and what was the lightest iteration of that. It turns out that I eat a lot. I have a very high metabolism, uh, even compared to other like trail runners and friends. And so uh, like on the Pacific Crest Trail, I was eating 4,500 calories a day. And in the end, I still lost weight over, over four months. It was crazy. I still lost, I mean, I didn't lose much. I lost like 
three or four pounds. But a lot of people go on the Pacific Crest Trail or any kind of long distance through hike and they come away having lost 20 or 30 or 50 pounds. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have that kind of weight to lose. So I, I intentionally ate a lot of food. So anyway, my food, I ate four, 4,000. No, I think it was like 4,400 calories a day that I was eating out there. Um, it was primarily dehydrated. It was okay. I'll just give you the layout. It was breakfast was six packets of, uh, oatmeal with olive oil added to it to add in more calories. Uh, so that was 1200 calories of breakfast. Um, in between breakfast and lunch, I would eat another thousand. No, not thousand, like 600 calories of trail mix. For lunch, I would have an entire like salami sausage and a third of a pound of cheese, which was another thousand calories. In between lunch and dinner was another 600 or so calories of um, of trail mix. And then for dinner, it was uh, ramen and instant mashed potatoes with a, additional olive oil to make it somewhere in a, again around like 1,000, 1,200 calories. So it was, it was, it's not like delicious food, but oh. it does have a lot of calories calories. It's mostly the sausage provided some protein, but it's mostly carbohydrates. And then you try and work as much fat into that as possible because fat is just more calorically dense than, than carbohydrates. I mean, people talk about that the, the most calorically dense stuff is just pure olive oil. So you should just carry a big bottle of olive oil and just take swigs off of it. But that sounds like repellent to me. I yeah. think I would, I think I would not make it far on a trip like that. Just taking swigs of olive oil. Ooh. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, what's it like sleeping out in Death Valley? I mean, you, oh, it's you, great. I mean, it's great when the wind's not howling. But a, um, yeah, it, it was beautiful. A, you said some kind of blanket, right? That you. I had um, yeah. So I carried a really I carried a lightweight sleeping pad, uh, a Neo Air, which is you know weighs like a fraction of a of a pound, but it's one of those inflatable deals, and then. I had a sleeping quilt. I mean, in an ideal sense, you'd think, oh, it's the desert. It's going to be hot. But deserts get cold at night. It's I mean, cold. it got down to like, I think the lowest temperature I had was 35 at night. And then the highest temperature I had during the day was like over 100. So it's like big, big swings. So I had, um, I had a sleeping quilt, like a 30 degree sleeping quilt. And then I had a bivy sack just to go around it. I probably didn't, I probably could have gotten by without the bivy, but the bivy's nice in case it sprinkles, although the likelihood that it's going to rain in the desert is very low. And, um, and both were very lightweight. So it ended up being, it ended up being reasonable um, and pretty, pretty light overall. Yeah. So last day getting into the, that, I guess that's the thing with these, with hikes like this, like there's no fanfare at the end. Oh no. So no, not at all. Instantly you get done, you get the last couple of miles, you finish up. And like, what do you like mentally? Like what goes through your mind? Like, well, yeah, the, the whole, the funny thing about that whole thing was like the, the final day, just based on where the water sources were in the park, it was basically like 40 miles for the first day, 40 miles for the second day, 40 miles for the third day. And then the fourth day, um, the water source wasn't for, you know, 50 or so miles. But at that point, you're only you're less than 10 miles from the finish. So it, it just meant basically like a 24 hour effort to finish up because I'm not just going to like camp when I'm 10 miles away from the finish. I'm just going to 
keep trudging through. So I, I finished, um, I finished it like nine 30 AM on a, on a Thursday or I forget, was it a Thursday? Maybe no, it was a Friday, nine 30 AM on a Friday. And yeah, in normal circumstances, I just would have finished up like at, in the middle of nowhere by myself. And it's like, yeah, you know, this super anticlimactic thing. <laughs> But because I'd made poor decisions, I'd mentioned that I was doing this to any, you know, I was talking about water in the desert and all of the research I'd been doing on this for months to anyone who would listen to me. And I'd mentioned it to a friend who happens to be a journalist for the LA Times. And she's like, oh, that sounds like that. that's a crazy story. I should write an article. On it. I was like, all right, if you want to write an article on it. So she contacted her editor and the editor was like, sure. And so then I realized, then I realized she she's like, well, I want to interview you um you know just like when it when it finishes up and i was like don't you want to interview me at the start because then i'll be like fresh and comprehensible whereas you know i i made this ridiculous decision and i didn't realize it until i was halfway through and then i was like wait you agreed to talk to someone who's a journalist for the LA Times when you're at your worst, you know, you just finished this, this huge effort. You've been climbing through the desert, hallucinating all night, and you get to the finish, you look like crap, and and now you're going to have some sort of reasonable conversation with a reporter that it's going to end up in, like, one of the biggest uh publications in the land like this was a ridiculous decision for you to have made but in the end yeah i talked to her the photographer took a bunch of horrible photographs of me as i look you know just absurd lying on the ground and then i tried to keep my mind about me as i responded to her questions about the thing so fortunately yeah there in some ways fortunate in some ways uh, other ways unfortunate i i it wasn't just me at the finish line i did have her to talk to and the photographer to talk to for a few minutes and then yeah then i just it was already getting hot because it's death valley even in february death valley gets hot um and i got into my car and I jacked up the air conditioning and I passed out because I was in no state to be driving. Yeah. Um, and I, I slept for like 45 minutes in my car and then I drove to the nearest town and I ordered uh, an extra large pizza and I passed out for 14. I took a shower and I passed out for 14 hours and it was uh, it was glorious. <laughs> so that was like my my celebratory finish. But it's not like there was some sort of fanfare. There was yeah. no. I mean, that's the nature of these FKs. Well, that's what's kind of weird with it. Like you, people get into them and you, you do these things, you finish and you're all excited, but you're doing it to no favor. It's just for you. Yeah, exactly. I'm high mean, yourself and yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much what you're doing. But ultimately, I mean, I find that's like, I've gotten, I used to do races. I used to do a lot of races. Um, like I said, in the last five, 10 years, but I've really veered away from doing races in the last couple of years, not really driven by COVID so much, just I've become less interested in doing formalized races where you have to pay money and you have to do all this stuff and just much more into these internally driven adventure runs kind of like this. This is obviously kind of an extreme version of it, but like coming up with a cool route that goes through some cool countryside or, or, you know, over this set of mountains or through this valley or whatever and doing it on your own. And honestly, I find it a lot more rewarding than like, Oh, I got, 16th in that race or whatever um even though of course you know being alongside competition that's that might be your pace or might be a little bit faster than you can drive you to kind of like higher performance 
I just find it much more enjoyable. Maybe I'm just getting old uh, in that I want to just be an old man roaming the countryside doing ridiculous things, but um, <laughs> it just seems more, more personally fulfilling. So uh, what is next for you? Oh, I don't know. I've thought about that a lot. Um, I'm hoping I've been, I've been hoping the last couple of years to, to through hike the Sierra high route, which is this kind of off trail route along the crest of the, of the Sierra Nevada mountain range in, in California that many people are familiar with. I've been trying to do it the last two falls, but the fires keep happening and then you get smoked out and it doesn't allow for this to occur. So I'm, I'm hoping to do that this year. Um, not going for any kind of FKT. The FKT is pretty solid on the, on the Sierra high route, but longer term, um, yeah, just some more kind of long distance, reasonably fast paced things. I was hoping to backpack across the center part of Iceland or even the center part of Greenland before there's no more ice sheets on Iceland and Greenland. That I mean, that seems, I mean, there's no ice sheets on Iceland. There's lots of glaciers, but Greenland ice sheet, obviously because of various things, climate change and so on and so forth is diminishing. And, you know, we're living at a pretty interesting time uh, in, in, in the world and the world of our environments and ecology and so on and so forth. And part of me wants to help stop these changes that are, you know, irrevocably changing our environment. But on the other hand, also appreciate the world that we have while we have it. Uh, so, so something like that, but that's a ways off. I need to do similarly months or years of research to make sure how I can pull this off and not die. Um, yeah, not, that's, that's always that's always key not quite so trivial to you know carry your garmin in reach and hit the sos button and get a search and rescue to show up when you're in the middle of like an un, largely uninhabited uh landform like greenland so really want to hone things in there uh cameron I, I really appreciate you sharing your story and, and everything else dude it's, it was so much fun to talk to you and, and oh, it's this, my this pleasure story. man i loved it I, like i said i'll talk to anybody who'll listen about water in the desert so uh it was a pleasure chatting with you jeff thank you Trail Life Podcast is presented by Solomon. Their passion for outdoor sports, new technologies, and craftsmanship has driven them to create progressive gear to enable you to freely enjoy and challenge yourself in the great outdoors. Today, Solomon is an incredible lineup of road and trail running footwear and hydration gear. Perfect for any runner on any terrain, no matter the challenge. Check them out today at your local running stores like Runner's Roost or on Solomon.com.